Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Way to praise the Lord this morning. All right, I got to say it. He is risen. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. Uh, today we gather together to say with full-throated conviction and enthusiasm that Jesus Christ is alive, uh, that he's working among his people, and that the tomb is empty. And uh, like, to, like the Apostle John, who we're going to look at today, he was among the first of the apostles on the scene. We say through our presence here, through our actions, our words, our songs, that the resurrection is the historical fact on which our relationship to Jesus is built. That Jesus has been, always will be, and is alive right now. That he is the resurrection and the life. This, my friends, is the key to our faith. It's the foundation on which everything is built. Some Christians will say, or some people will say, that Christians ought to do this, or be people who say this, do that, this, and the other. The resurrection is the this and the that. It's that whatever is said, whatever is done, whatever is thought, we do it because Jesus rose from the grave. We believe in a God who acts in history, a God who actually does things in the world, and whose activities have to be taken seriously as serious disclosures of his revelation to humankind, that he's Jesus was a real man who was really alive at one point, then was really crucified, then really rose from the grave, and now really continues to live at the right hand of God, but also working through the power of the Holy Spirit among his people. If Jesus was simply martyred and he doesn't rise from the grave, then he's essentially another wise person who has uh, motivational things to say to people, uh, wise quips. He's a uh, toga wearing uh, Tony Robbins or a... Uh, a Gandhi figure or something like that, but that's not what the scriptures claim. Uh, the scriptures claim, and we believe, that he in fact did rise from the grave. And so today we say that death has no hold on him or on those who believe. That day, quite early, while dawn was preparing to crack its daily smile, while it was still dark, Mary goes to the tomb, and there she discovers that there's no body there. And I want to today, we're going to look at John chapter 20 and some other texts, and we want to look at, first of all, just the basic resurrection story, but we also want to look at the implications of the resurrection and how that becomes the pivotal and fundamental story that even allows the people who are closest to Jesus, whether it's Mary, the apostles, whomever, to see the world around them in a way that was uh, very different than they could, even when they were walking right next to Jesus before the resurrection took place. That it says over and over again in the text that, hey, you know, when they once he was raised, they now knew what he meant then. So there's something that happens at the resurrection that allows them by faith to understand the world around them and even what had happened to them prior before. And my prayer is that this morning as we look on this side of the empty tomb, that we might be able to look at life as we know it uh, through that lens as well. So again, Mary goes to the tomb in John chapter 20. And she sees there's nobody there. Now, Jesus had told her, had told both she and the disciples that he was going to rise on the third day, but it's not the first thing that enters her mind. She runs as fast as she can to tell Peter and John. They don't know quite what to think at first as well, so they come to, to verify uh, what has taken place. They see the same thing that she saw. In John 20, verses 11 to 18, we don't have it on the screen, uh, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around, she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And so she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And with that, it's finished. Yes, I know. Jesus said it is finished on the cross, and I would not dare to quarrel with him on the matter. But what I mean is, something else finished. Something else was finished when Jesus rises from the grave. Something clinches the victory of God through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, for us to get to Easter, we need to understand how Good Friday took place and our role in putting him in the tomb, and then God's role of taking him out of the tomb. So he ends up in the tomb, and we've been in a series in, on, on the book of Romans here at New Vintage Church. And there, what Paul tries to help everybody understand is that the sinfulness of man is far more uh, grotesque than we often think it is, and the holiness of God is far greater and more holy than anything we can really fathom. And the gap between those two things, our sinfulness and the righteousness of God, was so wide that only Christ, as the what Paul terms the propitiation, kind of the, the substitute, the sacrifice, that that is what allows us to be right with God and have be in right relationship to God. But he ends up in the tomb in part as an atonement for our sin. It's not just that, hey, politically things didn't go his way and the Romans did a bad thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That there was a point behind it, there was a mission behind it that is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus and we had a hand in it through our, our sin. But then on Easter, we are encountered by a Christ who was unwilling to let the story of us and God end in death. That Easter then moves forward and it becomes a story about how God keeps pursuing his people despite his people. In the three days from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, we see the depth of God's love for the world and the unfathomable power of God's victory over death at the empty tomb. And it needs to become, should be, and always has been for the church, going back to the earliest followers of Jesus, the resurrection is the prism through which we look at everything in life. It's the way we see the world. The implications of the resurrection are what we want to explore and that kind of idea that the prism of, through which we see everything in this life, every world event, everything that goes on in your life, every up and every down, everything you experience every day, every minute, every second, should be looked at through that prism. When we look through that particular prism, we end up understanding things that Jesus said and taught differently than we can on this side of the tomb. Let me explain. Through his life, there are breadcrumbs to this fact. There are numerous occasions where it says, you know, they, they, he told them this, but they didn't understand it until after he was raised. So they thought they got it, but they didn't really get it. They got it in a sort of kind of way. Um, I remember seeing the, the game show Wheel of Fortune for the first time. Hangman for money, basically, is what that is, and on television and you have the boxes, and you have this empty puzzle, and the idea is I'm going to try to figure out what it says by picking a letter, and I spin the wheel, 
and they fill in certain letters, and I try to get the puzzle as soon as I can. And so Pat and Vanna, I think, are still getting it done. I, I don't know how, but they are. I'm surprised they don't have to shuffle up there or whatever. They look great for their age. It, I can remember seeing it as a kid, probably 10 years old, maybe even earlier than that, and thinking to myself and watching with that show when somebody would guess a letter, and they would say, I would, I would be saying, buy a vowel, pick an A, pick an A. I think I get it. And they would pick an R or something. Or they would guess the wrong word. They would pick the puzzle out and they would say, uh, I'd like to solve the puzzle, please. Okay, go for it. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It's wrong. And they'd have to go back to the next one because they tried to solve it before it was complete, before they actually knew what was there. That's the image I want you to have in your mind when we read these texts. They are going at this, trying to figure out what Jesus is trying to say, but they can't quite get it yet. And they never will get it until that part is put in there. Until the resurrection happens, there are certain things they can't understand. Even though Jesus showed up face to face, even though he showed up face to face and said to him, hey, this is what I'm saying and here's what it means. They'd miss it because they couldn't understand it until the other side of the resurrection. There are some things that can only be completed with that particular word or letter or sentence or paragraph or story, and the resurrection of Christ becomes that which finishes the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples. One was a text we looked at last week, Palm Sunday. The prophets had prophesied that how Jesus or the Messiah would come into Israel, he'd ride in on a donkey, uh, the prophets Zechariah, Isaiah, they had all talked about these things. And in John 12, after Jesus goes in to Jerusalem triumphantly, here's what it says in, John's 12, in John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Okay. All right, that's unique. Maybe there's one of those. Well, let me give you another one. Same story uh, told in the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in John, this is in John chapter 2, after he drives the money changers out of the temple, here's what they start going back and forth at Jesus, like, who's, who's he to do this? Here's what he says. He, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... The disciples remembered what he'd said and that he'd said this, and then they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. They didn't get it then. They got it later. So even though he tells them what he's saying, they still don't get it until he's raised, until they start to see the world and even the teachings of Christ himself through the resurrection. They didn't understand what he was saying or what he meant until after he was raised. So what did they exactly come to understand? Well, um, allow me to illustrate it through a, a story I heard Tim Keller uh, tell one time. Uh, there was a lady, she had an aunt, an elderly aunt, who one day decided to give her a brooch. Is anybody in here wearing a brooch? Raise your hand if you are. We didn't have anybody at the first service either. No brooches. Well, perfect. We may see some next week after this story. Um, but she gives her a brooch. And if you don't know, like all, everybody under 25 is going, what in the world is a brooch? It's like a piece of jewelry that, that you would wear often on a lapel or 
or something like that. It's, it's ornate usually. Um, and so this, this elderly aunt gives her niece a brooch, big, beautiful brooch, kind of dusty, old ladyish, you know, gives it to her. She goes, oh, thank you, Andy, she says, takes the, the brooch and admires it, thanks her for it profusely, and then puts it in a drawer. Off it goes. Well, 25 years later, she's got her own kids. They're getting older. Houses, they're getting ready to go off to college. They're getting ready to move. She goes through, she's going through old stuff, finds the brooch in the drawer. Says, oh, look at that. Picks it up, dusts it off, polishes it up. What's that? That's called a brooch. Your auntie so-and-so gave that to me. And so she says, oh, well, that's cool. That's where she goes, you know what? I think I'm going to wear it today, even though it's out of style. Even though nobody wears these anymore, I'm going to put it on anyway. So she puts it on. And off they go. And they happen to be doing some shopping those day, th that day. They end up in a jewelry store. And as she walks into the jewelry store, all of a sudden she notices the guy behind the jewelry counter starts following her down as she's going, looking at the counter like this. He's looking at her like this. And he's staring at the brooch that she's got on. And it's kind of starting to creep her out at some point. So she's like, can I, you know, can I, can I help you? And, and he says, I'm just admiring your brooch. W would you mind if I take a look at it? And she goes, yeah, sure. Takes it off, gives it to the jeweler. He looks at it. And he's looking at it through, takes it over, looks at it under a microscope, different things. Meanwhile, she and her daughter keep, keep going through things and uh, doing their thing. And at the end, he goes in and he tells her, he goes, this is one of the most valuable pieces of jewelry I have ever seen. This is centuries old. It is priceless. Well, now... The brooch is very cool, right? Now, it had been in the drawer. Nobody wears those anymore. I don't want to wear it because I might be out of fashion. I'm going to look the way everybody else looks. And she didn't understand that the thing that she had in this world that was the most valuable thing she could ever possess, she had taken and thrown in a drawer. She didn't get it. Now, it's similar to a parable that Jesus tells, and it's only like a sentence or two long, so most people skip over it. It's called the pearl of great price. It says, one day there was a man, and uh, he was out there shopping for pearls, and he found the greatest pearl there ever was, and he took everything that he had and sold it and bought that pearl. The brooch, the kingdom of God, the way it's understood, right? On one side of the tomb, you read scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you as well. Yeah, yeah, I get it. That's good. Boy, that's good. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't get it the way you do on the other side. Once you know that he's been raised, then that changes the way you read the text. Oh, you mean the kingdom of God, the one that will never die because he got out of the grave. That one, that's the one that I should put first. That's the one that's the most valuable thing in the world. That one. Yes, I do understand it now. I didn't then. I thought it was just about prioritizing your life and all sorts of other moralisms. No, no. It's deeper than that. It's a description of the world that is. There is a kingdom of God. Well, where's the kingdom of God? It's wherever Jesus is king. Where's that? Everywhere. How do I know that? Because he's alive. Well, then, I am in the kingdom of God. I don't choose to be in or out of the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God, the world I'm in. Okay? And so now... Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that you worry about. Don't worry about those things. 
I know, worrying's bad for me. I know, I'm on medication for it. I'm trying to get better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, yeah, that's fine. That's not, that's on one side of the tomb, though. The other side of the tomb is, you know what? I don't need to worry about what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink or what I'm going to wear. Because Jesus isn't gone. I'm not, I'm not remembering the death of Jesus or Easter Sunday like I remember Washington crossing the Delaware or Gettysburg or uh, the release of Michael Jackson's Thriller album or some other historic event. That it's, a, it's something that took place that continues to have meaning and makes the kingdom of God the single most valuable thing that I can have. And so far be it from me to put it in a drawer. Far be it from me to say, okay, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Uh, far be it from me to say, well, I know it's out of fashion, so I'm not going to wear it now. I'm going to pull it out on Easter Sunday and wear my brooch. That's when everybody knows, yes, I'm valuable and I have the brooch too. No, that's not what it's for. What it's for is supposed to be every single day. Something you wear around and people go, you know what, that's a little different. I haven't seen a lot of 14-year-olds wear a brooch. Yeah, I know. Want me to tell you about it? I can help you find one. I can help you get one. The most valuable thing you will ever have is the Lord Jesus himself. Active in your life, your sins atoned for, your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. My prayer, and if I may, for those of you who are prone to come to a church on Easter only or Christmas only, CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only Christians, let me say to you and let me beg you something. Don't put the brooch away till next year. Don't do that. It's the most valuable thing you have. And for those of you who are veteran Christians, can we stop taking it for granted? For those of us who, 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 who really are trying to follow Jesus to the best of our ability, man, is that easy. They just simply say, okay, yeah, 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 I've been there, done that, read all these texts before, heard all the stories before, done all this, done the church thing, sang the song, said the prayers, done all that, taken communion, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. That's like wearing the brooch in here, underneath. The brooch belongs out here. The pearl of great price, the thing that matters the most in this world, that for which Christ died, that which, when he said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, that thing that he was talking about, that is ours in Jesus. I got three things quickly for you from the resurrection and the implications therein. Number one, believing is seeing. In Mark 8, um, just to show you how quickly we are to forget what God has done and how we view things differently on one side of the tomb or the other, Mark 8, everybody's sitting around, the apostles are. Now, they've watched him, you're going to learn, Feed the 5,000 and feed the 4,000. And yet, they're worried about how they're going to get dinner. Listen to this, Mark 8, 16 to 21. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, uh, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. 
Okay? And then he says, do you still not understand? See, they'd seen him perform the miracles with their own eyes, two of the greatest miracles ever performed. And yet there they are, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, guys? We only got one loaf of bread and there's 12 of us. And he's like, were you guys, I could have sworn I saw you there, that it was your lunch that I took and divided up. And you saw that. You remember how many basketfuls you picked up after the fact? 12. Yeah. You remember the other time, 4,000? How many did you pick up? Seven basketfuls. Okay, just making sure. And you're still worried about how you're going to get dinner. Do you see? They don't understand until afterward. They don't get it. Now, we often say seeing is believing, but in the kingdom of God, believing is seeing. They, they didn't understand Palm Sunday. They didn't understand the miracles that Jesus performed or how he would rebuild the temple in three days until after he was raised. We on this side of the empty tomb have an enormous benefit or on, on the new side where we are born and raised on the other side in the light of the empty tomb. Um, one of the great endings in movie history is that of the movie The Sixth Sense. Now, I'm going to talk about this and um, I'm going to spoil it for you. If you've not seen it, you had 20 years, you're bad, all right? <laughs> so I'm about to ruin it for everybody. But it is one of the biggest mind blowers in movie history. When you get to the end and you realize that Bruce Willis is already dead and you're just like, what? Like you just go, Wait, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, no, no, I saw him, I saw him in the room talking to the lady. What about all the conversation with the little boy? Like, what, how could he, what? And so you know what you do then? You go back and you watch the thing again. You go back and you watch it again, knowing what the ending is. And you go back and you go, oh, I get it now. So she was just talking to herself, even though he was in the room and you see him there, he's not really there. Like you just keep doing that and you go all the way through stopping and pausing and rewinding and doing it. But then, so you can really only see that movie twice. <laughs> you see it the first time before your mind's blown. And then the second time when you all of a sudden realize what's going on and you're like, whoa, okay. I'm suggesting to you that's what the resurrection does. It tells you the ending, it blows your mind, and now all of a sudden I go back and everything that I experience in life going forward and everything I have experienced, I interpret with that as the storyline. That I, can't, I realize I can't look at every scene in light of the ending maybe in real time, but if I can, I want to, and if I can go back in time and just kind of go back and look at, I mean, everything that you experience, right? The death of your loved one, look at it through the lens of the resurrection. When you experienced the, the trauma in your life, when you went through the divorce, when, you, when you've gone through all the, all the bad stuff, and by the way, all the good stuff, all those moments of victory, all of the loving relationships that you had, all of those things too. Understand the reason for them isn't just the fact that you have good luck, it's not just the, the fact that you deserve it all. In fact, you probably couldn't deserve it less than you do. But God gave it to you as a matter of grace, right? So go back, sisters and brothers, and let's go back and remember that the resurrection is the story that interprets the plot of every day of our lives. Secondly, God is trustworthy. The little phrase, just as he said, um, 
at the, at the empty tomb, Matthew 28, verse 6. The angel says to Mary at the empty tomb, He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body is lying, just as he said. Now, I've already given you several other places where they realized, oh, yeah, that just happened just like he said. There's a, a world that we're living in right now where we are just not told the truth very often where people often do not keep their word. And that's one of the things that I think right now makes God stand out brilliantly. Because we realize when we look at the empty tomb that what God says he will do, he does. When he says to someone, rise, they rise. When he says, I will do this, he does it. There's a thing called the trust index that I guess smart people keep track of. They take polls about people. It's not like we need a, an official study to tell us this. This is one you experience every day. Our brows are more furrowed than they used to be. We don't trust the people we used to trust, and we don't even know why. We just don't. You know, uh, weather people, I find myself sitting there, and they're like, oh, it's going to be 70 degrees and sunny tomorrow in San Diego. And I'm like, really? Really? Two days ago, it was 69 and sunny, and you told me it was going to be 67, liar. You know, I just find myself getting more tense. It's like going into a gas station when you need to use a restroom, hoping to use a restroom. There's a sign on the door that says they're closed for COVID. And you're like, now? Why don't you just say, I don't want to buy toilet paper? Why are you going to lie to me like that? Why do you got to make it seem like that? Why do you... What, you know, the 19-year-old the, the, the kid on the corner asking for money who says he's a Vietnam vet. And you go, wait, no, 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 no. Or, or whatever it is, whoever's saying it uh, on your TV screen or whoever's saying it, whatever. It's like, I don't know who to trust. You look at your, for no good reason, you look at your spouse or your kids or whoever with a little bit more distrust, a little bit more because you're so used to people not telling you the truth. And yet... Here's God delivering yet again, just as he said. He said it. And so one of the things the empty tomb does is remind us as we're going through life in real time, we can trust God. We may not be able to trust one another as much as we would like, but we can trust God. That when God declares something, it happens. That when God promises something, it comes to pass. He is the one spoken of in Revelation 3 7, the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. And to that, the resurrection says, whom he decides to raise, he raises. We can trust God. And then, lastly, God is with us. This is not a Christmas sermon. This is a principle that goes on all the time. The presence of God. See, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then maybe he's not with us. Maybe he was with us. Or God, the Father might be with us, but not him. But if he's alive, then that means that his promise at the end of Matthew 28, that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age, is still intact. That we can experience walking with him now, that we can walk 
empowered by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is now alive in us. And I want to here use our good man Peter, who when last we saw him in Mark 8, he and the apostles were looking around going, well, gee, I don't know where we're going to get any food to eat on the other side of that. Now look at this guy on the other side of the empty tomb. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Almost like a brooch. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ Jesus is revealed to the whole world. Now hear this part from Peter. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Uh, in lesser news, still cool though, this happens to be the 11th birthday of our church. This day. Yeah, amen. Amen. 11 years. Um, and I, I find myself, uh, a lot of times Facebook memories will pop up, and, 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 and this is the preachers count things. And it's 11 years at MDC. It's my 22nd Easter sermon as a preacher, 27th as a pastor. I was five years as a, as a worship pastor before preaching. And um, I have people occasionally go, you ever get tired of preaching uh, the same story on Easter? Like, <laughs> No, uh, not at all. <laughs> I mean, it is the foundation of everything that goes on. One of the reasons is, uh, when I read texts like we've read this morning, and, 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 and you see the apostles clamoring about, I don't know where we're going to get any bread, after watching the miracles that God has done, and then I go back and I watch well, all that God has done in our church over the last 11 years, I find myself going, I don't want to be one of those dudes after watching all of the different good things that he has done, after watching all of the miracles of God that I've seen happen, the life change and everything, I mean, hundreds of baptisms, I mean, just incredible works of God, far be it for me to then go, leave this side of the tomb and go back to the other side and go, boy, oh boy, I, you know. He might look at me and say, what, weren't you there on April 17th, 2011? Yeah, I was. Okay, did you remember what happened after that? I do. You know, what about this time? Yeah, I was there. How about this time? Yeah, I was there. How about this time? Yeah, I was there. Okay, and so why are you asking me? Why, are you, why would you ask me if I'm going to do great things in the future? 
Sister, brother, today, look at your life on this side of the tomb. Okay? And remember, through that great miracle of God, go back now and watch that whole stinking story again. Watch it again. And look at it and go, okay, I see how God delivered me through this. I see how, how he helped me survive that and he got me through that and how, how he showed me this here and how he brought me this. All of those things. Hold them up and understand that those things are the most valuable things you have. They are breadcrumbs to the empty tomb. And that you, sisters and brothers, we live over here on this side. Today, we will take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And go ahead and ask those who are going to pass out the elements. You should have gotten them when you came in. And if you did, um, great. If you didn't and you'd like them, just put your hand in the air like that and we'll bring them to you. Um, but as we do, we do this today. 1.7 billion Christians all over the world. Most of whom are doing something similar. To celebrate the fellowship that we have with Christ but also with one another as those who proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. There we go, I think we've got almost everybody. So as we do, the bread and the cup, if you're new to this, represents the body and blood of Jesus, the sacrifice. But don't, don't forget that that isn't the whole story. That's not the, that's not the end right there. The end is what you and I are living right now. We're living on this side of the tomb in that the one who was crucified that day was in fact raised from the grave and we live in that now. So let us pray as we share communion together. Our Heavenly Father, may today be a day where we begin to understand some things that we can only understand in light of the resurrection. Father, today in our taking of communion, we say that we believe, we say that we can trust you, and we do. And we rejoice, Father, that you are with us. And we remember this now in the taking of the bread and the cup. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.